You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You may have a seat, church. And let me say good morning. My name is Mark Kirkendall, and I'm one of the leaders uh, here at this campus. And if you're visiting with us this morning, a guest with us, we are so glad you're here. Uh, but we want you to know we do not believe you are here by accident. That whatever you thought brought you here, maybe to uh, support a family member at the end of our service where we'll be commissioning our deacons. Uh, to, hey, I just saw this church, strange building behind Goodwill and thought I'd go see what's going on back there. Uh, you're not here by accident. In fact, none of us are. That God brought us here today and has a purpose for us. Uh, and I'd love to meet you after the service if you are visiting uh, with us. I also want to say thank you to so many last week that braved the rain and uh, the humidity. It could not have been any higher last Sunday when you passed out over 1,500 uh, door hangers. And so thank you for helping us get the word out uh, about our new service times beginning next week. And what times are they? And man, I would love for you to come to that 9 o'clock service. I'm kind of starting to wake up in panic mode that I'm going to be like preaching to Clint. And uh, so, there you go. So man, if, you, if, you, if that works in your schedule, we'd love to have you at 9 o'clock uh, for that uh, first worship service. Uh, this is why we're here. Let's go to the Word. Let's go to our Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, we've got two more weeks in kind of our... Uh, August series, and then we will be studying through the book of John. But today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. As you're finding there, I want to tell you about an article I read this week. Uh, we uh, get the Texas Monthly Magazine, and there's an article in there called uh, Astro Ball. And if you're a Rangers fan, you're still kind of struggling, ready for this season to be over. But the Astros are actually doing well. But it was this article that came out in Texas Monthly. You can find it uh, in the issue of this past month. But here's what they highlight. In 2014, Sports Illustrated did something that shocked so many people. 2014, an author wrote that in three years, the Houston Astros will win the World Series. And guess what happened? Exactly three years to that day, if you were following that series, it's where... The uh, Houston Astros in Game 7 beat the Dodgers, and Ben Ritter was absolutely right. And you think, how in the world could he have predicted? Because here's what's amazing. The three seasons before that, they had lost 100 games each year. People are thinking, some were upset, some were mad, some just couldn't believe it. How can you say the, the Astros will win in three years? And he was absolutely correct. So they began looking into what was it that made him say in three years they'll win. It was some things like this. He watched this team and they began focusing on short, not on short-term success, but for the long haul. And they began making decisions that way. Talked about they began developing young talent and pouring resources and, and time into the, the farm club. They hired a NASA engineer to begin running data analysis. But the number one thing it said about their success was when each individual bought into the team. 
And it said that each individual became more concerned about the team than their own stats. And so the Astros finally saw success and growth when a bunch of individuals started experiencing unity. So this morning, we're going to see Paul talk about a different recipe for success and growth, not with a baseball team, but with the church. And if the church wants to see spiritual growth, Paul's going to give the recipe for how you make that happen. So let's begin in chapter 4 in verse 1. He says, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. And you've got to stop right there because there's some little irony built into this. It's that Paul is actually sitting in prison. Paul's in a prison in Rome and he writes, I therefore a prisoner, but notice not of Rome. He's thinking, Rome, you think you have put me here. But he says, no, I'm a prisoner, but not of yours, of the Lord. Even in that situation, Paul sees God moving and using this in his life. And then he gives the command. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, or worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And there's a lot to talk about here. So first of all, he says, urge, meaning I charge you, I I implore you, I'm begging you to do this thing. And then he says, walk. And it's basically the way you live your life. Your ebb and flow of how you do life, that is what he's talking about. And he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy, meaning in line with or consistent in agreement with what I'm about to tell you. And then he gives it the calling. And if you read too quick, you're going to really miss the importance of what he's really saying here because he says the calling. Notice he doesn't say your calling. He's talking to a group in Ephesus as a whole. So what Paul is saying is I urge you to walk in a manner of something that we collectively, all together, are called to. So he's putting everyone together and says this is our calling. So what is it? You see in verse 2, I urge you to walk, all of you, collectively, with all humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. So the calling is to live a life marked by these four things. And the first he says, humility. It's a word we've heard, and it means opposite of pride. And here's where it begins, though. It begins with accepting that God is the authority in your life, that he's in charge, that he gets to decide what is best for me. And then it moves to a place where you begin ordering your life to where you think of others more than yourself. It's putting others first. It is seeing others before you see yourself. This is walk with humility. Then he says gentleness, and this is the opposite of like self-asserting yourself into something. It's, think of it this way, it's like power, but it's controlled. If you're a dad, you've got a small child, it's like you wrestling with them in the, the living room. You have all the power and all the strength to beat them every time. But what do you do as a good dad? Every now and then, not every time... You let them win. You let them think that they're big and bad and they can push you over and and pin you down. 
And so it's a gentleness, it's a power under control. But in this sense, it's not pursuing your own agenda, but living your life in a way that benefits other people. Just like that dad, it's not his agenda of showing his dominance. He's doing it in a way of controlling, being gentle, not asserting his own agenda, but thinking of their best interest. And then he says patience. One we all love means endurance. means never giving up, even under diversity. What Paul means, it's working through your disagreements. Paul is saying it's finding the differences and working through them. About enduring in the long haul. You know, you're a part of this even in the church. We talk about, man, you're around here long enough, someone is going to hurt your feelings. And it's usually me, you know? But that's just how it is. When you live in close proximity to one another and you view yourselves as a family, sometimes things are going to happen and you're going to disagree and you have to work through them. And then he says, bearing with one another. So humility, Gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. And it's the word forbearance. When he's talking, it means making allowances for other people's faults. Allow that just to sink in for me. He's saying, you have to know people aren't perfect. And it's getting along with people that are hard to get along with. Because then it's easy to have patience with those that are easy to get along with. It's Easy to bear with someone, but what about the ones that it's hard for us to do that with? And that's what I wrote down. It's loving those that are hard to love. And it takes everything in you, but that's what Paul says to do. He says, walk in a manner of a life marked by humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, but it's not... So that people look at you and go, man, aren't they just great? You see how patient they are? Man, do you see how gentle they were with that person? No. We do all of this and we share the same calling of putting others first, not seeking our own agendas, never giving up, especially when we disagree. Getting along with people that are hard to get along with. But notice the reason in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is what we're striving for. We are to maintain unity. If we read too quick, we think this is something that we have to go and we have to create. But notice the word maintain simply means it's already been created. We can't do that. We are simply to fight to maintain it. Because every time there are more than probably just you, there's going to be a fight sometimes for unity. Maybe sometimes you even fight even among yourself for unity sometimes. You feel like different personalities, at least I do sometimes. But anytime you put more than two people together, you have to fight for that unity. Whether it's a marriage, family, a working environment, a group of friends, and especially a church. That we are to maintain unity He says you need these things, gentleness, humility, patience, forbearance, that that is the spirit. That is how we need to live to maintain the unity that Christ creates. 
Well, and then in verse 4 through 6, he tells you why. He says, this is the reason. Here's where your unity comes from. Notice, and kids, see if you can count all the times he uses the word one. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So Christ creates the unified body. We, as hard as we tried, we could never create that. The great news about that is, it means that there is something that unites us that is far greater than what could ever or should ever divide a group. That what unites us is more important than the things that we allow us to come between us. Because only God can do this. In fact, think of a marriage. Two different people, different personalities, different likes, different agendas at times, different ideas of how things should go, and only God could make them one flesh. Doesn't mean it's always seen that way, but God creates that. So same thing with the church, that God could take not just two people, but hundreds. And only God can take a group of people with different backgrounds, different educations, experiences, and ideas, and personalities, and only God can mesh them as one. So Christ creates the unity, and what are we to do? We fight to maintain it. And how do you fight? By pursuing a spirit of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. And so for the first six verses, Paul is highlighting the beauty beauty that happens when one group is working as one. The unity that's there. But the next verses... Paul's going to flip it on his head and show us now the beauty of the differences. Well, how do they fit together? It begins in verse 7. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, you hear the word grace, and we often think, okay, it's unmerited favor. It's something that I get or I receive that I don't deserve. And that's absolutely true of this word. But there's another side to this word. It's not just something you don't deserve. It's an enabling of doing something that you could never do. A divine enablement. And you might would call that a spiritual gift. So it's something you don't deserve. It's unmerited. But it's also a gift that is given to you. But how do we normally think of gifts? You think of somebody. You think of who they are and what they like, what they don't like. And you go and buy them something or you make them a gift. And You present them this gift and they unwrap it and it's for them, for them to enjoy and them to use. And everyone likes receiving and giving gifts, but this gift is very different than what we normally think of. And notice how. Paul is about to go back to the Old Testament to a psalm, Psalm 68. He says, therefore, it says this. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And so this is a a military image about Christ coming to set people free from being captive. And I love some of the translations where it talks about, he says that he took them captive to set them captive. Meaning, I'm winning them 
to be mine. But captive from what? What is it that he rescues? Go back to last week, Ephesians chapter 2. The prince of the power of the air, the philosophy of the world, your own flesh and your evil desire. So Christ came to set you free, take you captive from those things. But then he earns and does something else. He turns around and he does something with these, this new group of captives. And he's not going to set them free just for freedom's sake. Because he goes on to say, Therefore he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gives, and he gave them gifts to men. Meaning, he comes, and he sets these captives free, and then he turns around and he gives them as a gift to the church. So you've been set free by Jesus Christ, and that word grace, you don't deserve it, also empowered, and he does that, not so you get to go run free and live your life as you want, he does it so that you can now be a gift to the church. So he does all the work, and he turns around, sets you free for you to be a gift for someone else. I was reminded this week of Russell Westbrook, good picture of this, and 2016, he goes and wins the All-Star MVP. So think of all the time he put in in the offseason, all the games he played, the injuries he worked through, and he wins the MVP of all the sweat that went into all of this, and he wins a car. And you know what he does? He turns around, and he gives that car to a single mom. Now, what a great picture of what Christ does for us. He wins the battle. He sets us free. He does all the hard work. And then he turns around and he gives you as a gift to the church. So then keep reading verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He also descended as the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might feel all things. And he gave, there's that giving again, apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Meaning that Christ came and he gives all different kinds of gifts to the church. Meaning no gift is exactly the same. Some are this and some are that, but all the gifts are needed. And notice why. All of us, not just me and not just you, but why all of us were given as a gift. And he's going to go through a list here beginning in verse 12. First, he says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Meaning that you are a gift to the church so that other people become more effective in what God has called them to be. To equip all the saints... So it's like gifts are like tools, and one tool needs something else. What does a hammer need? A, a hammer needs a nail, and a, a screwdriver needs a, a, a screw. And you have all these tools, but they need each other. So you and I have a calling and a purpose, and we're going to talk about that more next week. But we need each other to fulfill it. I mean, it'd be really boring to preach to an empty room. You know, it'd be real boring to prepare, and then all of a sudden no one's there. So each gift needs other gifts to be effective. Then it says to building up the body 
of Christ. So the second thing is that all the gifts are needed so that the body can grow. The body's not built on just by one person or even by just a few. It takes the entire body working together, all the different parts that have been given as gifts, meaning this, because I have felt this way, that we can no longer think, oh, and I, I really don't matter. You know what? I, I'm really not that significant. I mean, I kind of come and, you know, people may not really know me. I'm just not that important. Listen, all I do is, I, man, I just stand at the door or I just make coffee. And No. Christ has said, no, no, no. I come to set you free and I'm now presenting you as a gift. And he's given you to help each other fulfill their purpose and their calling and to use you to build up the church. So I want you to see in the next verses how long we get to do this. When do we get to retire? He goes on, and he's going to tell you. If you can do these four things, when we've done these four things, we get to lock the doors, and we just get to go do what we want. First of all, it says in verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith. So you naturally think this, that if I was going to set this up, that the fewer people I have, the better chance I have of creating unity. Okay, I can get along with myself. I finally got that down. All right, I'm going to introduce one more person. When we get that down, that's getting a little tough. I know three people, you really got to start fighting for unity. And that's how I would think things would go. But no, Christ has got a different thing in mind. Christ goes, no, 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 it's not a few people. The more and more people, yes, you might think more personalities, more problems to deal with, more agendas. But Christ says, no, the more people, the more gifts. And the more gifts, the greater the unity. So we have to keep doing, we have to keep working, we have to keep striving to maintain the unity until we all are unified. So when we're there, that's just step number one. And then he says, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And what he means in that phrase, it means until you have a full understanding of who God is. Meaning when you've learned everything about Him, and you all have unity, then you can begin thinking about cashing in that 401. But then he puts, number three, to mature manhood. Now, he's not just talking about men, even though us men need a lot more maturing than you ladies most of the time. It means until we all move from being babies to grown-up adults. So what's the number one characteristic of a baby? All babies share this. All babies are by nature, and we've talked about that the last couple of weeks, are all by nature selfish beings. It's all they know. In fact, I've never thought or seen of a baby thinking, man, I'm really hungry. Well, mom's pretty busy right now. You know, I think I need to just wait until she's got some time and then she can feed me. Now, what do they do? Man, the moment they're hungry, they let everybody know. I've never seen a baby think, you know what, mom just changed her shirt. I shouldn't spit up on that. You know? But nature, that all they can do is think of themselves. 
So until we've all moved from a self-centered mindset of thinking more about others than, than we do ourselves, then we can stop. So when we all come to full unity, all of us, we all come to a full understanding of who God is, and we all move from being babies to manhood. But then it, number four, to the measure of a stature of the fullness of Christ, so that when we are no longer by children, uh, tossed to and, and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so Paul is saying that until we all exhibit Christ and the mind of Christ in everything that we do, then we get to retire. So when we all live as one, we all know everything there is to know about God, We've all moved from being selfish and we have a fullness of Christ in our lives. Then we get to retire. Paul is saying, man, you'll never get there until I call you home. But there's one more vital part to this that has really just totally shocked me this week. And it, it's in verse 15. And I want to read it and then I want to put a verse right with it. It says this. So we've got the first Four, or first four, now there's one more thing. Rather, speaking the truth in love, you are to grow up in every way. What Paul is saying here is that you need to hold verse 13 right along with it. So when your Bibles are on your vices, look at verse 13 along with verse 15. So Paul is saying in verse 13, working until we all collectively grow up into manhood. That's how the ESV reads. But if you got the NASB, it says that you would grow up all to a mature man. You King James lovers out there, yours says a perfect man. Now, I was never great at English. Science and math, I could do that. But I do know this. When you read these persons, we are to grow into a mature man or a mature person. And that is singular. So watch this. Paul is saying every time we are immature, it's always in the plural. And it's seen as babies and children. But when you reach maturity, it all moves to the singular. As he says at the end of verse 15, we grow into a mature man, into a perfect person, into him, singular, who is the head into Christ. So here's Paul's point. If you're immature, it's like a bunch of little kids running around only thinking of themselves. But if you mature, you are seen as one person, singular. So when you mature... You're not growing into a bunch of individuals. All of a sudden, you're growing into one person. Meaning the more you become one, the more you become like Him. So maturity, and here's the key, maturity happens collectively. It's when a bunch of individual babies grow into one person. Paul then gives a picture of what this oneness looks like in verse 16. And the whole body, joined and held together by every joint 
with which it is equipped, and every and each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And what this means is pretty simple. It means that if you want to mature, if you want to grow, if you want to move from being the Astros of 2013 to the, or 14 to 2017, if you want to mature, if you want to have a greater Christ-likeness in your life, if you want to grow spiritually and you're tired of just being right where you are and you want more, it only happens through community. You can't get there by yourself. Now, there are some things that you should do privately, reading Scripture, memorizing, serving in that way, but you can't get there by yourself. Spiritual growth happens through community. But it is hard, and it's messy, and it's scary putting yourself out there. But it's vital. And that is how Christ set us up to grow, that maturity only happens through community. It's when a bunch of babies grow into one. You can't grow into being spiritually mature just by working on yourself. It's through deep involvement in the church community and through the increasing of unity and closeness of the relationship inside the church that you begin to grow and mature. And so let me highlight just some ways that you see this practically. One is by the idea of what we call small groups. On Tuesday morning, men, there's a group that meets up in the office at 6.30. They open scripture, they pray, they get into each other's lives. Women's Bible studies are about to kick off in September, uh, September 5th and 6th. There's also a women's retreat coming up. And men, I want to put that on us. We need to make sure our wives go. We need to make sure they go and connect and to build relationships in community. Life groups, they're about to be kicking off soon. and We want to help you find a group. Our youth, September 5th, they're midweek. Uh, service is about to start back. Another way is by joining a service team of, of locking arms and serving together. But listen, it's scary and it's messy. It can be frustrating at times, but it's always worth it. And I was doing good till this point. Because um, I know the benefits of this. Um, I hope we're a church that is a place where it is okay to not be okay. That we can come and say, you know what? I've had a week that I want to forgive. My family's had one of those. It was hard. It was painful. It was scary. But watching the pursue, pursue, pursue us, encourage us. And I want more people to experience that. I heard some stories this week about a guy I shared in the men's Bible study. He had a problem. It was a stuck tractor, only in East Texas. Didn't ask for help. Looks up, and there's a man with his tractor on his trailer ready to help. I watched just last night some families get together and go hang out. And I thought, what a beautiful thing to see happening. This couple pursued that couple, and they're out celebrating together. I heard a young lady say that um, I've never felt more cared for 
than by this church. And here is what will set this church up for success and growth. It's when people pursue other people. It's not programs. It's people pursuing other people. You have neighbors. You have coworkers, family members. You have people sitting right around you. They're looking and needing someone to care about them and love them. They're longing to belong to something that is greater than themselves. They need a true biblical community. So here's how I would ask. Who are you actively pursuing? When was the last time you invited a family that maybe you don't know out to lunch? Invited them over to your house for supper. Who have you personally invited to, hey, I meet with a group of guys on Tuesday mornings. Come with me. You know what, man, I've got a life group and I want you to come and experience what we are experiencing. We have so many children here and I love it. Are you taking an interest in them? How many of them do you know their names? I would simply ask this morning, would you pray that someone, that God would lay someone on your heart that you need to seek out? But I know it's not easy. It's a struggle with living in a A life marked by humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance, it is hard. I know I'm not always right, even though I want to be. I know that it's not easy to get along with others at times. I know that I push my own agenda, as you have. I want to give up helping other people because I just get tired. I get tired of trying to keep things together and Fight for joy and it just gets exhausting. But you turn around and there's the church. And when it gets hard to maintain unity, of living a life of biblically together, it's hard when it's frustrating, when it's hard to put other people first. When you just want to run and hide because it's messy. Remember these two things. In John chapter 17, Christ is praying for our unity. And then in verse chapter 3, verse 10 of the same book we're in today, it says this. I'm writing this so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Meaning heaven is watching, even the evils are watching God's church at work. And God is painting a beautiful picture of when people come together and live as one. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.